Thought I'd do a different background today, since, honestly, this episode is something of a unique confluence. What we have here is an episode that was the first one where they were in the process of making it when they understood that Gene Roddenberry died. In fact, uh, the, he had actually died prior to this episode, but after the game came out. But, obviously, when they were making the game, they didn't know that was going to happen. This episode, by contrast, by the time they were wrapping up, they had enough time to put the title card at the front of both this and the next episode. And I just want to say very, very briefly, obviously I disagree with Gene Roddenberry on many, many things. And I feel that a lot of those things have been stated you know, by me and by other people, and don't really, I, I, I don't feel the need to restate them. I don't want to bash the man. I just want to be honest about him. I disagree with a lot of things he did, and I feel that he was kind of scummy in certain areas. It doesn't mean he was a uniquely horrible person. You know, human beings are more complex than that, obviously. So, I'll admit, when I got the news, <clears throat> and I did, right about when this episode was coming out, I was sad just like a whole lot of other people were. Because, well, duh, right? So, next thing I want to mention really quick here. This episode uh, came out on November 4th, 1991. The episode right after it, which we'll be covering next week, came out November 11th, 1991. Now, I bring that up because you might be... Give me some historical context, Lore. This was right before Star Trek VI came out. Now, I'd actually seen Star Trek IV, V, and VI in the theaters. I've, I've talked about this over in the movie ruminations, but the, the VI is the one that really resonates with me most. IV was the one that was like, you know, I got to see that with my the, in the theater with my dad. I've probably told the story before I can remember the place that we went to. But six, six the one that was like, oh, that was awesome, and it hooked me. Even as a kid, it hooked me. In point in fact, uh, it, it's among the earliest films that really had that kind of an impact on me when I was this young. I bring that up, though, because I was actively watching TNG when, it, when this was happening. and I had been since TNG came out, right? <clears throat> so this episode was keenly positioned and done deliberately to help generate interest in the film, but also to kind of tie in the fandoms. <clears throat> One of the things Rick Berman said many times is that he didn't want to deliberately reach out to the original series fandom, but at the same time, he didn't want to ostracize them either. And I will give Rick Berman a degree of credit for his attitude there, because some of you may not remember this, but back when TNG first was coming out, there was a lot of TOS versus TO and TNG mentality. Nowadays, we can kind of joke about the who's the best Star Trek captain thing, or Kirk versus Picard, but back when TNG was still getting started, basically pre-season four, I would say, there was a whole lot of anti-TNG bias from some TOS fans. Now, I'm not trying to call these people screeching masses or whatever, but you could see how the adversarial nature of it was kind of a part of the fandom. This is arguably when that really stopped being a thing. Now, obviously, there is still some of that even to this very day. But speaking as someone who was around when this was happening and paying attention to the trends and the comments and my own friends and people at, at conventions and all that, a lot of the adversarial nature of this dichotomy between the TOS fans and TNG fans kind of started to fade around this point in time. We started being Star Trek fans instead of, you know, TOS fans or TNG fans. And I liked that as a kid, because I liked both series, right? Even though I obviously hadn't been around when TOS was coming out, not counting my second loop through as the, in the time travel. Uh, obviously, I still enjoyed TNG, but I also enjoyed TOS. I didn't see why it had to be this big versus thing. Now, 
what I, you might be asking, why are you bringing this up with regard to this episode? Well, this episode was written by three people, Rick Berman, Michael Piller, and Jerry Taylor. Now, some of the writing credit was distributed because Piller spent almost all of his time on episode two, which was actually filmed first, thanks to scheduling conflicts, because that's the nature of television. You don't always film things linearly in sequence. In fact, that's the nature of film in general. Look up movies sometime and see the first shot of movie films. It's almost never the first shot of the film. Anyways. But Frank Marusco, who was the chairman of Paramount at this point in time, basically came down from on high and said, Hey, guys, why don't you try to spread a little bit of TNG stuff into Star Trek VI? And he had a discussion with Nicholas Meyer. And keep in mind, as I've discussed over my Star Trek VI rumination, Star Trek VI had an interesting production cycle. In fact, Star Trek VI almost didn't get made at all. So what I, I bring that up because I think Meyer was a little bit more open to the idea of executive influence than he otherwise would be, since, historically speaking, Meyer is very anti-external influence. But I also bring that up because the way, that, the way they decided to do it was excellent. There were little bits and pieces, tiny bits of technology or references or locations or Michael Dorn coming on to play, you know, Worf's uh, grandfather or whatever. Just little bits and pieces that were trying to show that Star Trek VI was made with TNG in mind, which is something that hadn't actually been done before and indeed would basically never be done again. Now... That worked, and everyone was cool with that. But then Berman and uh, Pillar were like, you know, it'd be really awesome. Why don't we go ahead and do something in TNG for the film? Cross-promotion is something that's so obvious of a concept, I don't even feel the need to discuss it. But also, well, at least from Pillar's side, because there's a huge uh, interview by Pillar on this one. Pillar basically said he wanted to do exactly what I was talking about earlier, to bridge the gap between the two fandoms, to make it a Star Trek fandom. Now, he might have been thinking about it from a financial perspective or a creative perspective or a fan's perspective or whatever. We don't know. Rick Berman supported him this wholeheartedly. He was probably thinking of the financial side. But I can forgive that because I'm kind of with him on this. You know, TOS fans becoming Star Trek fans, TNG fans becoming Star Trek fans, ultimately just boosts the brand overall which is good for us, at least in some ways, and certainly good for them. So they started doing this and discussing this. They finally reached out to Leonard Nimoy, and Leonard Nimoy said, ah, jeez, I don't know. And they're like, all right, all right, work with us. Let's workshop it a bit. And they workshopped it, and they, they, they tossed out some ideas, and they, they nixed some ideas, and, and they just kept working with it. They didn't let him go. And finally Nimoy was like, you know what, okay, I like where you're going with this, and I'm going to do this with you. Now, for those of you who know where Nimoy had an incredibly busy schedule, uh, a writer, a director, and someone who was doing his own projects on the side, never mind his acting career. So Nimoy basically had to squeeze himself in here. Nimoy was also very expensive at this point in time. That's one of those weird things we all just kind of have to accept about actors is the fact that actors are pricey. Like, look up sometime how much money Robert Downey Jr. by himself has made in each MCU film, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. Now, that's always been true, though. That's a common uh, Hollywood concept. It's been around since Hollywood has been a thing. Whether it's good or not is another topic. But anyways, point being, Spock was expensive. But Nimoy said, you know what? I'll do it for real, real cheap. Because TNG basically didn't have the necessary funding in order to be able to pull Spock into the show. It just didn't. 
he was just going to be way beyond the budget of a TV show. But Nimoy agreed to do it for practically peanuts, basically getting paid the same as any other guest star, like the guy who plays Bardic, um, which I wrote down his name, uh, Malachi Throne, or Malachi Throne, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, uh, who was also actually someone from the original series, funnily enough, but anyways. So he agreed to do it for super, super cheap, which allowed them to get the episode made. Which brings us to the episode proper. Because when they sat down and worked this out, it became very apparent very quickly that because of Nimoy's schedule, they couldn't really do a full two-parter with Spock. They would tease Spock, but ultimately Spock would only show up at the end of Part 1 and then be fully a part of Part 2. There was no getting around that. His schedule just wasn't allowing it. So they had to functionally rewrite parts of the episodes, and this led to why Taylor was brought in to finish up Part 1. Jerry Taylor actually wrote the novelization of Unification, by the way, which I actually recommend if you ever have time for it. It's not the best stuff ever, but it's some good stuff. Add some nice background material. Anyways, so that's why Spock is seen uh, twice in this entire episode, once in a picture right at the beginning. Although, I like this. Because the way they do this, most TNG fans, even if they're not a TOS fan, are probably pretty cognizant of TOS. And they they did something that I've talked about a few times before, twice actually before, where they had a teaser specifically aimed towards fans of Star Trek. The teaser is, now we've gotten this, this image from Romulus. Quick side note. I like to think that after the episode The Defector, in which we admitted we know almost nothing about Romulus, including you know its terrain or its locales or anything, that Starfleet kind of started upping their intel game since Romulan, the Romulan Star Empire started being more active as a player on the galactic stage. Just food for thought, because they're able to get a, a picture of a person on planet from light years away. That is damned impressive. <laughs> Anyways, so we see the picture, and it's Spock. It's Leonard Nimoy. They don't name drop him. That's good. That's what I mean. It's just, hey, we've got this picture. Zoom and enhance. Spock. Oh, my God. Cut to credits. That's good stuff. Obviously, they were marketing the hell out of this, and I was aware of this. Me and Mom actually got TV Guide at this point in history, so we were all well aware that this was coming. But I had one friend of mine, Vincent, who wasn't aware of this coming. He didn't know. And he was just like, I actually remember his reaction because he called me as the episode was happening. He was like, oh my God, did you see that? <laughs> it just kind of gave you an idea of the significance of this event, historically speaking. So Spock left without telling anyone. Now that's interesting in its own right because later when he, uh, Picard talks to his mother, she mentions that Spock had put all his affairs in order before he left. Which means one of two things. Either no one else was paying any attention to what he was doing, which is kind of unlikely, but, you know, whatever. Or Spock's full intent was to do this and possibly this be his final mission, which, I mean, I can kind of buy that. But neither of these really explain why he wouldn't tell anyone. I've often found that that's one of the biggest flaws of unification in general. There's two major flaws of unification, in my opinion, and that's the big one right there. They have this fake defector plot, which is pointless. Spock's not defecting. And it's only there because he didn't tell anyone, I'm going to seek out possible diplomatic relations with the Romulans. He doesn't have to give specifics. He doesn't have to talk about the concept of reunification. He just has to say that. Boom. He actually explains to Picard in except, exceptional detail, getting across all he needs to in the next episode, hey, this is what's going on and this is why I'm here. He could have just said that, but whatever. Anyways. So... There's a really good scene between Picard and Riker. It's a very minor scene, but I point it out because it's a good example of little bits of continuity. Picard mentions he's only met Spock once. 
Now that's awesome. I, I can't even believe they got that right. That might have even been luck. Because he actually mentions back in Sarek that he actually had the opportunity to meet Spock once. Oh yeah, by the way, I know what you're about to say, because I pointed out back in Sarek that connecting TOS and TNG was a big no-no back then, and you're right. You can kind of see how the winds of change have sort of shifted by this period of time, and again, why this is so significant now that effort is being done on behalf of the creators to actually connect the two ties. Anyways. Um, then there's also this bit where Picard says, you know, sometimes a father and a son, and Riker just says, understood, because of the Icarus factor. There's also a bit where they find this Vulcan debris. Now, believe it or not, that's actually the other problem with unification, but I don't, I don't want to talk about that just yet, so we'll just move on from that for the moment. She mentions, his mother, mentions how uh, Spock and Sarek had both publicly debated and disagreed with each other on the Vulcan, excuse me, the Cardassian War. Now, that's interesting considering that the Cardassian War is such a vague circumstance that to this very day, we don't even know exactly when or how it happened. We just know that there was a series of conflicts between the Federation and the Starfleet and that there's now a treaty. <laughs> and it was within the last generation because O'Brien was involved in it. That's about all we know on that for certainty. But I bring that up because it more demonstrates how Spock was always willing to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with his father without basically being afraid of the larger giant when it comes to the realm of debate and politics and, of course, being the ambassador, one of the founding, founding individuals of the friggin' Federation right here was Sarek. This, of course, leads to the Sarek and Picard scene, which, as you might imagine, is pure gold. First of all, we have Mark Leonard playing the you know, slowly degenerating Sarek until finally he hones in on Spock's name, Spock. And that's what manages to give him a degree of self-control. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, because what he does is brilliant. He focuses himself, and then he becomes very calm and rational, and then he loses a thread, a thread of thought, and just one thread. And then he starts to become a little bit more irrational. He likes to twitch a little bit more and move a little more erratically until finally he can barely even finish a sentence and he ends up laying down and he can't even finish Live Long and Prosper. It's a great showcasing of, of exactly how much this degenerative disease is affecting Sarek, that he only had a moment of clarity and he couldn't hold on to it forever. It's a very powerful scene. But what I love, too, is how much, how important it is that, he, that, that Spock is to him. You know, a defector? No. He immediately denies that. There is no way in hell that Spock is a defector to the Romulans. What else he might be doing? Well, that's a little bit different. Maybe he's going to see Pardek. Yes, yes. And now they have a name. But what I like more about that isn't just the exposition. It's two little bits. First of all, he mentions he used to disappear into the mountains, and I used to tell him not to, and I used to punish him, but he'd always endure it and go anyways. This is the one and only reference in all of canon Star Trek to the animated series. And I wanted to mention it because I've heard many, many arguments over the years as to the nature of the canonicity of the animated series. Like with a lot of TOS and Season 1 TNG, it is actually quite easy to eject it from canon because of how little it fits. Except for the episode yesteryear, which is the one referenced here. Because a lot of people tend to agree that that episode... Is fairly congruent with the existing timeline. As an aside, he then mentions, you know, Picard says, I know how much your son means to you, and Sarek just says, Tell him, tell him, Picard. Given how soon it is after this that Sarek dies, this is functionally Sarek's last wish. 
that Spock knows how much his father loves him. We'll talk a little bit more about that next episode. So then they try to get a hold of Garon for days and, and fail at this. There's a lot that can be said about that. Ultimately, I like to think that Gowron is basically being an idiot here. And it's not like he's... It's, it wouldn't be the first time, and it certainly would not be the last time. But Gowron is playing at politics in a situation in which he is, let's be honest with ourselves, very afraid. The only reason that he regained the support of so many houses after the Civil War, or insurrection rather, was because of the fact that their, their, the side they were supporting was proven to have Romulan aid. That's it. They don't actually support Gowron, and thus he does not have a strong position. This is most likely why he is doing this historical revisionism. Not that I am in favor of that, to be clear. But this is probably why he's pushing that particular um, nar narrative, right? I am the one who saw us through the Civil War. I defeated my enemies, blah, 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 blah. It's also probably worth noting that since the Federation refused to openly support them, which I still think is dumb, that might be part of why he's trying to distance the Federation from the, their role they played, even though the Federation did actually support him in the war, just in a very, very, very roundabout way. So why he'd refuse to talk to Picard, that's an interesting one in its own right. Finally, an adjutant answers him, played by, I can't remember his name, but he's an excellent actor, especially over on Stargate. Anyways, uh, who is like, hi. Yes, what can I do for you? He's very busy. And Picard says, all right, listen. I need a ship. I need a ship that can cloak. I need it now. And whoever gives it, well, in, in return, he will have my gratitude. Or, of course, if Garon's busy, we can ask someone else. And they'll have the Federation's gratitude. And he just kind of lays it out there. And the guy's like, okay, okay. Shortly thereafter, a bird shows up. Go figure. Because... As I've pointed out before, Gowron does know how to repay his debts, his political debts. And I think he kind of recognized that this wasn't just a casual call. This was Picard saying, yo, me, pay up. So Gowron pays up, because he always does. It's actually a weird aspect of his character. So then we see Captain Cavada. He's a nice little bit. Uh, you know, he pushes Picard. Picard pushes right back. You'll notice, despite the relative severity of the situation, there's a lot of levity in this episode for, so far, a lot of light-heartedness and tone to it. I bring that up because, obviously, the bits on the Klingon ship are just pure comedy gold. Picard, of course, pushing back. But also Picard and Data are just awesome, as Picard's trying to get some sleep on one of the most uncomfortable beds in the world. Trust me, I know. I've actually slept on something like that more than once. <laughs> But he's trying to get some sleep, and Data's just standing there, and Picard's like, what are you doing? Did I make any noise? Uh, no, not as such. Okay. And then Picard goes back to sleeping, then he looks up, and Data's just staring at him. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. What are you doing? I'm not staring at anything in particular. It's just a, an overall amusing scene. Uh, a little bit padding, but as I've said before, it's not padding if you do something with it. If you add some kind of substance to it, in this case the substance being the humor. Then they find out Sarek died. Yeah. So, skipping ahead of my notes a little bit here. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm just looking here. We see the proconsul. He'll actually, this, act, this is so strange. This proconsul, the same character, will actually be in Deep Space Nine in stuff we haven't even covered yet. It's way further in, I want to say, season five or six. It's pretty far in. What's really strange about that is they got a different actor to play him, a completely different actor. I actually didn't know it was supposed to be the same character until I was looking something up regarding the character over DS9. I was like, oh, huh. 
that's funny. I guess he managed to maintain power for quite a while, which is pretty impressive for someone so young. I'll talk more about that next episode. I do want to mention we finally see Pardic. Like I said, uh, Malachi Throne coming back from the original series. It was good to see him again. And uh, then we see Romulus a little bit. I'm gonna let me actually pause. Let me rewind for a second because first I want to talk about uh, Klim Dakachin. Now, first of all, he does a great job with the role. Um, the 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 bored bureaucrat who doesn't who is as Troy puts it, the king of his own particular hill. I like all of that. I like the guy being willing to work with Troy because she's a very handsome woman. I like the fact that he is someone who is basically just a bureaucrat. And I like the fact that he is used to being on top of things around here and thus has his own little aspirations of political power because I see that so many times in real life. No, seriously. I once worked at a fast food place where I knew someone who was, who basically was in charge of the back line and treated that as if that was their particular hill that they were queen in this case of. It's a very normal thing. You know, this is my territory. I am in charge of it. And you know, appropriateness, appropriateness, right? So I just kind of like that little inclusion of, for lack of a better way to put a humanity into his portrayal. I also like how he is basically bored and disinterested in everything right up until he starts talking to Troy. And then he warms up a little bit to her because, hey, you know, it's a nice woman talking to me. And then he finds out the ship's gone. And then all of his, his basic passivity and his emotion and his portrayal is completely erased. And he, start, he gets angry. He, gets, he starts moving a lot more physically. He says, oh my god, we've never had a ship missing. What in the world? The second ship isn't there. We do regular trips. This is unacceptable. He is pissed. Because it's his hill. Because this is his hill that he's in charge of and he's proud of. And it just screwed up. And then they have to fight this random ship. Now, one thing I like about this. Too often, and as I said, this will be a very recurring trend uh, from now on, is that the, you know, the ship of the week is something that can match the, you know, our guys' ship, whether it's the Voyager, the Enterprise, uh, or the Enterprise-D. But what I like about this is they make it so that that ship is a match for them, just in pure firepower, just in weapons. But it's also really unstable. One shot takes it out. And as weird as this may sound, I kind of like that, because it makes sense. The Enterprise is a well-rounded ship. That thing over there is a glass cannon, which clearly wasn't expecting combat. And it also kind of ruins the mystery, because now they don't really have much to go on. I'll discuss more about the mystery next week, because that's when it really comes into its own. But for now, I want to talk about Romulus, like I mentioned. I mentioned the kind of lightheartedness of the episode, and that is, in my opinion, almost to its detriment here. Not with the data cling and stuff, that's good. But I mention it here because Romulus is almost casually portrayed as a police state. As it should be. It is Romulus, and it is a police state. But, you know, there's lots of little details there. You know, this is... So, <laughs> you're from security? What's he in trouble for? Oh, don't worry. Here, enjoy a meal from the loyal. Because, you know, stuff, just little stuff like that. Also, the fact that two armed soldiers can pull people right off the street, and no one bats an eyelash. No, no gasps. No, oh my gosh. Because it's normal. Now, of course, we don't have to worry, because that's actually people on our side pulling us off the street. But I point that out. Because we get little snippets of just how messed up it is to live on Romulus at this point in time. But then we spend the majority of that time with Data being like, whoops, I don't know how to blend in, in a way that should have gotten them caught like minutes ago. <laughs> They're lucky that the people who caught them are people who are here to take care of them. Remember, it has not been that long since the episode In the Mind's Eye where they tortured a man into brainwashing him in order to try and ruin his career and nearly try to kill his friend. I mean... 
there's a lot of really horrible things that could have happened if they got caught here by the wrong side. And they just kind of play it off for laughs. It's, eh, it doesn't quite work for me, but otherwise, I did enjoy this episode. Now, I definitely have to discuss Unification 1 and 2 separately, because they were written by separate people, done at separate times, and most importantly, have a completely different tone to each of them. We'll be showing exactly how different this is next week with Unification Part 2. See you around, guys.